welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Back with some heady ones this week, traveling from crimmigration to asylum and into deep statutory interpretation. Won't you join me on this five-case journey? Maybe distract you for a minute as Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis try to outdo one another on draconian immigration proposals in an effort to win the Republican primary? Most recently, Donald Trump has stated his intent to issue an executive order on day one of his intended second term, reinterpreting the 14th Amendment and 125 years of Supreme Court precedent as not necessarily granting citizenship to individuals born on U.S. soil. Gonna be a heck of a year. And if you notice that the recording might be a bit clearer this week, let me know. I've padded my office for your listening pleasure. Here are the cases. First case is Portillo v. DHS, published by the First Circuit on May 30th, 2023. This case is about firearms offenses, and it's uber-complicated. Mr. Portillo is from El Salvador and became a lawful permanent resident in the United States. He did not naturalize, and a decade later, he pled guilty to a few crimes, including defacing or receiving a firearm with a defaced serial number, in violation of Mass General Law Chapter 269, Section 11C. For reasons unexplained, DHS did not focus on any of Mr. Portillo's other convictions, and instead charged him as removable solely based on an INA Section 237A2C charge, as a non-citizen convicted of a firearms offense based on that Section 11C conviction. Among other things, to make an LPR removable under that provision, the state conviction, the Massachusetts conviction, must involve a firearm or destructive device, as defined at 18 U.S.C. Section 921A. And in what is arguably the silliest, but a very important distinction under crimmigration law, the federal government, which has saw fit to protect firearm ownership of various kinds, excludes from the definition of a firearm, quote, any firearm manufactured in or before 1898, end quote. 
the antique firearm exception. That means that if Massachusetts, unlike the federal government, does not exempt antique firearms, non-citizens win under the categorical approach, because Massachusetts criminalizes more things than do the feds. Massachusetts might, for example, criminalize defacing an 1897 musket under the statute at issue, while the federal government would not. And we all know that 1897 was an excellent year for muskets. Just ask noted firearm historian Justice Thomas. That's essentially what Mr. Portillo argued. But the IJ and the BIA weren't buying it, relying on the fact that although Massachusetts doesn't technically have an antique firearm exception like the federal government, actually, quote, Massachusetts allows the defendant to raise the affirmative defense of an antique firearm, end quote, where it applies. Therefore, applying the realistic probability test incorrectly, both the IJ and the BIA held that this meant that even though the statute was clearly overbroad, remember it criminalizes things with antique firearms, Mr. Portillo couldn't show that Massachusetts actually prosecuted doing things with antique firearms. So even though the statute was overbroad, and even though DHS had the burden to establish removability, Mr. Portillo lost, said the IJ and the BIA. The First Circuit did not agree. Now true, there probably isn't a case where Massachusetts prosecuted defacing, much less receiving a defaced serial number, of an antique firearm. But that doesn't matter anywhere other than the Fifth Circuit, by my count. Because, quote, if a state statute is plainly overbroad, a realistic probability that a state will apply its statute to overbroad conduct is established, end quote. The statute alone resolves the issue as the current Supreme Court has now said time and again in other contexts. Having held pretty quickly that the IJ and the BIA's analytical framework and application of Moncrief dicta was wrong, the First Circuit proceeded to the substance of the antique firearm issue itself. And that's where it gets really complicated. As to the Massachusetts law, quote, nothing within Section 11C itself explicitly excludes antique firearms from its purview, end quote. One point from Mr. Portillo on his argument that the state statute is overbroad. And the statute that actually defined what a firearm was in Massachusetts at the time of conviction, quote, appears to encompass antique firearms, end quote. Point number two. In fact, the definition actually excludes some stuff like, quote, weapons not detectable by x-ray machines, end quote, but it doesn't exclude antique firearms. Point number three. I'm just going to stop right there, though, as I think I have before. Has anyone ever seen the movie In the Line of Fire with John Malkovich and Clint Eastwood? I really think that Massachusetts should start criminalizing the illegal use of weapons that are not detectable by x-ray machines. Don't say you weren't on notice, Massachusetts. Anyway, Oil got some points, too. For example, the Massachusetts Firearm Definition, Section 121, quote, is not entirely silent on the age of a firearm, end quote. In pertinent part, Massachusetts excludes things, quote, manufactured in or prior to the year 1899, end quote. So, ah, yes, Massachusetts would exempt 1898 firearms and earlier, just like the federal government does. But, explained the First Circuit, Section 121's antique firearm definition doesn't actually apply to Section 11C crimes, which is the crime at issue in this case. 
It is true that Massachusetts courts have instead, as the IJ and the BIA found, applied the antique firearm exception as an affirmative defense to at least other similar Massachusetts firearm criminal statutes. However, explained the first, Section 11C is different than those other Massachusetts statutes. Unlike other similar statutes, Section 11C doesn't refer to Section 121's antique firearm exception. It's pretty complicated stuff, but as I read it, and as the Massachusetts Supreme Court has explained, another Massachusetts statute exempts licensing requirements for 19th century firearms and older. So if you don't need a license for such firearms, so the reasoning goes, a lot of firearm statutes in Massachusetts tethered to the need for a license wouldn't be criminal when they involved old-ass guns. But that's not the case with Section 11C, which isn't about licensing at all. It's about defacing. Quite the serious thing to do to a gun, what with the Supreme Court's recent concerns about protecting the rights of guns. And Massachusetts still technically criminalizes defacing an antique one, while the federal government doesn't. Plus, in that very Massachusetts Supreme Court case that I just referenced, the Massachusetts Supreme Court said that, quote, a firearm manufactured before 1900 is a firearm within the definition of Section 121, end quote. That's at least the fourth point for Mr. Portillo, and that's a pretty devastating quote. Hence Oil's vigorous attempt to contextualize it. But the First Circuit read the quote for what it is. A win for Mr. Portillo. Indeed, even, quote, the fact that neither Massachusetts nor federal law required all firearms to be manufactured with serial numbers until 1968 also does not persuade us, end quote. Anyway, it appears that serial numbers indeed existed on some guns in the 19th century. So maybe it was a crime to deface them then? Who knows? It's all far from clear. Because after all, using 18th and 19th century history as the primary basis to adjudicate firearm laws in 2023 is a bit insane, certain podcasters have observed. To be fair, it appears that all parties in the First Circuit did a heck of a job researching the relevant firearm history, as the Supreme Court now deems so important. At the end of the day, the text of the statute makes clear that technically, defacing serial numbers could have been a criminal offense in the 19th century in Massachusetts and today regarding 19th century firearms, meaning that again, Mr. Portillo wins. He is not removable as charged. So congratulations to the all-star team of Jennifer Klein, Susan B. Church, and Kathleen M. Gillespie for petitioner. Gonna go out with a bang on this one. Although the argument didn't win the day here, I believe it worth noting that both the IJ and the BIA appear to have relied entirely on a Massachusetts affirmative defense to find Mr. Portillo removable under the categorical approach. This would appear to be contrary to recent BIA decisions that have ignored affirmative defenses when they helped the non-citizen under the categorical approach. What's more, the First Circuit very much considered the affirmative defense argument in this decision, but seems to disagree with the applicability of it to Section 11C. But the analytical framework is all there. Seems like consideration of affirmative defenses during the categorical approach is fair game in the First Circuit. Dare I say the nation? 
Also, the First Circuit actually returned to the realistic probability test at the end of this decision, which longtime listeners may know is a bit of a pet issue of mine. So to be exceptionally clear, quote, where a statute is facially broader than its generic counterpart, an actual case is not required to satisfy the realistic probability test, end quote. Yes, a non-citizen must find a case where the statute is not overbroad if the non-citizen is to avoid removability. That's Duenas Alvarez. But when it's overbroad per the statute's text, quote, to require an actual case in such a scenario would say more about the state's prosecutorial decisions than the statute's application, end quote. Moncrief dicta changed nothing. Preach your honors. And that is Porteo v. DHS. Sticking with crimmigration, we have Khan v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on May 30th, 2023. This case is about receipt of stolen property, aggravated felonies. Adjudicating the Pennsylvania crime of 18 Pennsylvania Code Statute Section 3925A in the Fifth Circuit, no less. Mr. Khan is from Cambodia. As with other lucky ones, he was admitted into the U.S. as a refugee in 1983, and then he became an LPR in 1986. Why, oh why, he did not become a U.S. citizen, I do not know. In 1999, he pled guilty to receiving stolen property in violation of the Pennsylvania Statute Section 3925A, receiving a sentence of, quote, 3 to 24 months imprisonment, end quote. I imagine we'll be returning to that one. Why'd he plea? Who knows? But I've heard that in the 90s, the general feeling among Cambodians and Vietnamese individuals was that they couldn't be removed to their former countries, no matter what. Not anymore, though. Now it's a serious problem to have those old removal orders. Remember Mr. Kong from episode 151? The issue, therefore, is the Pennsylvania statute an aggravated felony that makes Mr. Khan removable today? Well, applying the realistic probability test in the exact opposite way as the First Circuit just did, and I swear I read that First Circuit decision first, the Fifth Circuit explained that there must be a, quote, realistic probability, not a theoretical possibility, that the state would apply its statute to conduct that falls outside the generic definition of a crime. To show this, the non-citizen must establish that the state actually prosecutes the non-generic offense, end quote. even in the removability context. Flat-out circuit split. Hats off to you, Padilla Warriors in Texas, y'all. Eat your oddly named breakfast tacos with pride. All of that doesn't matter so much here, though. I mean, the Third Circuit just concluded that this exact statute was an aggravated felony in Jacome v. Attorney General of the U.S., episode 114. But circuits must conduct their own analyses. To constitute a generic theft or receipt of stolen property aggravated felony under 101A43G, the state crime must require the, quote, taking of property or an exercise of control over property without consent, with the criminal intent to deprive the owner of rights and benefits of ownership, even if such deprivation is less than total or permanent, end quote. Emphasis by the court. That is, a state statute that permits conviction where the defendant convinced the victim to willfully handing over the property and then took it? Likely wouldn't qualify as federal theft. Also, the defendant must have the intent to deprive. 
gets most tricky with receipt of stolen property offenses. After all, in those type of cases, the defendant is usually not the actual taker. For such offenses to qualify, the state crime must require a mens rea or mental state of at least, quote, knowledge or belief that the property was stolen, end quote, when the defendant receives it. That's a matter of Diang from the BIA in 2017. And this is where Mr. Khan focused his wrath. He argued that, quote, Pennsylvania courts had long interpreted Section 3295A as requiring only a reason to believe mens rea to satisfy a conviction, end quote. That's a lessened mental state than knowing that the goods are stolen. But it seems like the Third Circuit recently rejected this argument in Jacome. As the Third Circuit explained, the Pennsylvania legislature amended the statute in 1972, quote, to remove its objective reasonable person standard, end quote. Although Pennsylvania courts after that were, quote, less than clear about the application of its mens rea standard, end quote, those lower courts were mistaken, explained the Fifth Circuit, relying on the Third. And the Pennsylvania Superior Court apparently said the same thing in 2010. The Fifth Circuit also explained that this was not a retroactive application of Pennsylvania law or that 2010 Pennsylvania Superior Court decision, but instead, this was the Third Circuit and the BIA and now the Fifth Circuit explaining what the receipt of stolen property mens rea had always been in Pennsylvania, at least since 1972. That means that like the Third Circuit, the Fifth Circuit held that Section 3925A under the Pennsylvania Code matches the definition of a 101A43G aggravated felony theft or receipt of stolen property offense. Judge Ho concurred in judgment to note that he really, really wants to use the word alien when discussing these immigration decisions. As an immigrant himself, he's totally cool with it, explaining that, quote, the word refers to extraterrestrials in other contexts, end quote, but not this one. And I'm still confused. The definition of an aggravated felony at 101A43G requires a sentence to a term of imprisonment of at least one year. Based on this decision, Mr. Khan received a sentence to a term of imprisonment between three months and 24 months. Couldn't that be less than a year? Doesn't DHS lose where it has the burden to establish removability? I don't know. And that is Khan v. Garland. Moving on, we have Granados Arias v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on May 31st, 2023. This case is about asylum and related relief. Ms. Granados Arias is from El Salvador. She sold tortillas from her mother's home with her sister Maria, and because of that began to get extortion demands that she pay Mara 18 $50 a week, and that she, quote, send with the payment a piece of intimate clothing, end quote. The demand came in a note with a threat not to go to the police. Ms. Granados Arias' friend in town, who owned a small clothing business, had received a similar note two weeks before. She had gone to the police, and then she received a death threat, demanding that she withdraw her complaint. She did so, but Mara 18 killed her son a month later anyway. Knowing all of that, Ms. Granados Arias and her sister Maria paid the extortion, one time. They couldn't afford to keep doing so, nor did they provide the intimate clothing. Quote, afraid of the gang, they ultimately closed their business, end quote. 
and Miss Granados Arias fled to the U.S. shortly thereafter in 2014. Maria stayed behind, though. She lives five houses from where they used to live and work and, quote, does not work or leave the home, end quote. Looks like Miss Granados Arias' son also remained behind, but he and the family live in fear of Mara 18. But they haven't been threatened or harmed since that note. An immigration judge denied Ms. Granados Arias' claim to asylum, deeming the experience insufficient to rise to the level of past persecution, and that the record didn't show a likelihood of future persecution, quote, because her family members in El Salvador had not been threatened or harmed since receiving the note, end quote. The IJ also made a no-nexus finding and other findings. Throwing the kitchen sink, really, the IJ held that Ms. Granados Arias' risk of persecution was not, in fact, quote, distinct based on her gender or former business ownership, and fear of generalized crime, extortion, or violence in a country cannot serve as a basis for asylum, end quote. Convention Against Torture Protection was denied, too. The BIA affirmed, affirming only, however, the no-nexus finding. That is, that Miss Granados Arias was extorted and threatened with death and kind of sexually assaulted via note, but that it didn't happen for the right reasons under asylum law. So that's what's mainly before the Seventh Circuit now. The Seventh Circuit affirmed the agency. To establish a claim to asylum in the Seventh Circuit, explained the panel, Miss Granados Arias, quote, must show that the persecution or well-founded fear of persecution is based on her membership in the identified social group, end quote, the nexus requirement and the Seventh Circuit concluded that she had not so proved. But before it got there, the Seventh Circuit actually addressed Ms. Granados Arias' claim that she did indeed have a well-founded fear of future persecution. Her family may live in El Salvador still, but they, quote, live as fugitives, end quote. The Seventh Circuit disagreed. Yes, her sister never goes out and never works. Yes, her son lives in fear and is driven to school to avoid the gangs. And yes, her mother is afraid of being targeted and so is scared of even sending Miss Granados Arias a letter. But, reason to the Seventh Circuit, the BIA considered all of this. Although the BIA didn't get into the nitty-gritty of every fact, it need not always do so. And what the BIA concluded wasn't so crazy that the court was willing to vacate the BIA's decision. So it didn't. Plus reason to the Seventh Circuit, Ms. Granados Arias didn't actually provide quite enough evidence to show that indeed her family lives like fugitives. On Nexus, the Seventh Circuit similarly rejected Ms. Granados Arias's claims. She had argued that she suffered persecution and feared it on account of at least one of the following four cognizable particular social groups, women in El Salvador, business owners in El Salvador who refused to pay rent, business owners who oppose the gangs, and women business owners. But even if cognizable, the Seventh Circuit, like the BIA, didn't see those as the reason. Rather, quote, substantial evidence supports the board's conclusion that Ms. Granados Arias's perceived wealth made her a target for extortion, end quote. Mayor 18 and other gangs target everyone, and have made large swaths of El Salvador horrible, to paraphrase the Seventh Circuit, but that cuts against an asylum claim like Ms. Granados Arias's because it therefore undercuts her particularized fear and her nexus claim. On withholding of removal, the Seventh Circuit actually believed that the BIA had erred, as it had held Ms. Granados Arias to a higher nexus standard than is required for asylum. To the Seventh Circuit, relying on WGA v. Sessions from 2018, quote, the nexus requirement is the same for both asylum and withholding of removal, end quote. 
to actually get wonky for a minute, I'm not actually sure whether WGA addressed the one central reason versus a reason and matter of CTL issue that I often discuss, or whether rather, that quote is a bit out of context. Haven't read WGA in a long time. The Sixth and the Ninth Circuit have held that actually, the withholding of removal nexus burden is less than the asylum nexus burden. I don't know if the Seventh Circuit has actually addressed this statutory text issue, again, haven't gone back and read WGA. But whatever it is, the withholding of removal nexus burden is definitely not more, as the BIA had held here. And so the BIA erred by holding Ms. Granados Arias to a higher nexus burden on her withholding of removal claim. Harmless, though, because, explained the Seventh Circuit, Ms. Granados Arias failed on nexus for asylum already. So no remand. On Convention Against Torture, the Seventh Circuit just didn't see it. The one note and extortion and general country condition and family in El Salvador, all of that, it was insufficient for a 51% chance of torture, said the court. Ultimately, to the Seventh Circuit, the record shows that there are, quote, general conditions of crime and violence in El Salvador from which small business owners and women are not exempt, end quote. But because it applies to everyone, the court held that that didn't equate to asylum, withholding of removal, or cat protection for Ms. Granados Arias. And that is Granados Arias v. Garland. This podcast is sponsored by Journey Business Plans. Journey is the leading business immigration plan writing company in the United States. 10 years. And they know immigration. Heck, they started as an E2 company themselves. Journey prides itself on its responsiveness and overall customer service, preparing business plans for E2, EB2 NIW, L1, EB5, and much more. If you don't yet know about Journey and don't want to listen to just me, ask your colleagues. Or even better, try them out. Visit www.journey.com and use promo code REVJOURNEY30 for a 30% discount on your first business plan. That's R-E-V-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y-3-0. Or click on the link in the show notes. This podcast is also sponsored by Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would otherwise not qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fee or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. Moving on to Salgado v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on May 31st, 2023. This case is about untimely petitions for review, so it's not going to end well for the non-citizen. Mr. Salgado is from Honduras and has lived in the U.S. without authorization since 2002. His father is a lawful permanent resident, and his minor daughter is a U.S. citizen, and so, 
When placed in removal proceedings, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. An IJ denied, holding that the hardship to his daughter and father just wasn't exceptional or extremely unusual enough to allow Mr. Salgado to stay in the U.S. Mr. Salgado also applied for voluntary departure and the alternative to avoid a removal order, which the IJ granted. On appeal, the BIA affirmed the denial of cancellation, but remanded to the IJ to see if voluntary departure was still actually appropriate under the law. I don't really know why the decision here is vague. On remand, though, the IJ again granted voluntary departure under 240B-B. At that point, Mr. Salgado filed a petition for review of the BIA's denial of cancellation of removal many months after the BIA had affirmed denial of cancellation, but within 30 days of the immigration judge's final decision granting voluntary departure again. So on petition for review, Oil took the position that Mr. Salgado couldn't do that. Petitions for review must be filed in circuit court within 30 days of a removal order becoming filed, and to Oil, that clock began when the BIA denied cancellation of removal. Mr. Salgado naturally countered that proceedings did not become final until the IJ made the decision on remand to reissue voluntary departure. Kind of a not there. And a bit surprising to me, the Fourth Circuit agreed with oil. The statute prescribes that circuits may only review, quote, final orders of removal, end quote. And then a petition for review must be filed within 30 days of that final order. Not the whole brief, just a relatively short filing. That 30 days is not a claims processing rule, like the BIA just explained its deadline is in Morales Morales, but instead it's, quote, jurisdictional in nature, end quote. So like I said, I was surprised that the Fourth Circuit agreed with oil, but maybe I shouldn't have been because in the 2011 decision Levy Holder, the Fourth Circuit held that a BIA, quote, order denying relief from removal, but remanding on the issue of voluntary departure is a final order of removal, end quote albeit the fourth held in a slightly different context. But that's not a good start for Mr. Salgado's argument. Indeed, in the Fourth Circuit, a BIA, quote, remand limited to issues of voluntary departure does not deprive the BIA order of finality for purposes of judicial review, end quote. To the Fourth Circuit, it all comes down to the text of INA section 11A47A, which defines the term order of removal. As the Fourth Circuit explains, that statute defines the term as the, quote, order of the authorized official, concluding that the non-citizen is removable or ordering removal, end quote, emphasis by the court. And based on what the Fourth Circuit is citing to, it seems to believe that the Seventh Circuit agrees with it. Watch out, everybody. Quote, the availability of voluntary departure may have remained up in the air, but voluntary departure does not affect Mr. Salgado's removability. It affects only the manner of his exit, end quote, reasoned the court. To the Seventh Circuit, then, there existed a jurisdictionally significant final order when the BIA affirmed denial of non-LPR cancellation of removal, even though it remanded for voluntary departure which makes Mr. Salgado's petition for review now very untimely. What a nightmare. And a bit of a landmine of a decision for circuit councils to watch out for. Also, the decision necessarily will result in petitions for review going on alongside active removal proceedings, right? 
That doesn't seem like what Congress envisioned with the INA, but I guess Section 101A47A says what it says. It seems like the circuits are a bit all over the place on this, so peep the final footnote in this decision and do your research when you have similar issues, everybody. And it's got me wondering. What else is covered? If a BIA finding of removability is enough to the Fourth Circuit to trigger a petition for review, is it then the case that if a non-citizen files an interlocutory appeal to the BIA of an immigration judge's denial of a motion to terminate and loses, the non-citizen must petition for review that limited issue to the Fourth Circuit while at the same time litigating relief before the immigration judge? That seems nuts. But it also seems to me what this decision might require. Quote, it is enough, that is, if a final order deems the petitioner removable or establishes removability, it need not go further and order immediate removal, end quote. Emphasis by the court. Then again, explain the Fourth Circuit in a footnote, its rationale here may be tethered to the fact that, in this case, quote, there could be no judicial appeal from the subsequent disposition of Mr. Salgado's request for voluntary departure, end quote. Maybe. I mean, what if the IJ had denied it? But either way, that makes my interlocutory motion to terminate hypothetical a bit less clear. What are we counsels to do? I say risk the petition for review. And that is Salgado v. Garland. That brings us to Novello Cardenas v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on June 2nd, 2023. This case is about deficient notices to appear and motions to reopen. It's been a minute, no? Welcome back, perennial issue. The Fifth Circuit sure has been on the forefront of these. Quote, This challenge adds to our recent case law analyzing different supposed flaws in notice given to individuals about removal hearings. End quote. Mr. Navello Cardenas is from Ecuador and entered the United States without inspection in July of 1999 at 25 years old. He was quickly apprehended, detained, and given a notice to appear that did not have the date and time of his first hearing in violation of INA Section 239A's express requirements. He received a notice of hearing for detained proceedings, but he was released from detention two days before his first hearing. When released, he received a change of address form, wherein former INS had indicated what his new address would be in New York. Former INS notified the immigration courts of this address, too. There was just one problem. The city in New York where Mr. Novello Cardenas was going was misspelled by one letter. A letter which, quite frankly, I don't see how it could have messed up USPS. But it seems like it did. Because later that year, the immigration court mailed Mr. Novello Cardenas a notice for a new hearing at that one-letter misspelled city address. The notice of hearing was returned to the court as undeliverable. Mr. Novello Cardenas didn't appear, and he was ordered removed in absentia. That was the end of it until a few months after the Supreme Court issued Pereira in 2018. At that point, Mr. Novello Cardenas probably found a very smart attorney and filed an in absentia motion to reopen. A bit of a flaw, though, here when filing such motions, the motion included an unsworn written statement rather than a sworn affidavit from Mr. Novello Cardenas. In that unsworn statement, Mr. Novello Cardenas stated that he had provided former INS with the right address and the right spelling, and that he had even checked the mailbox every day in New York. 
but he never received the notice. Indeed, explained Mr. Novello Cardenas, he received former INS's bag and baggage letter ordering that he appear for his removal shortly after being ordered removed, where former INS had actually spelled the city correctly. So former INS got it right when they tried to deport him. But the city was wrong in what former INS reported to the immigration court, meaning that the notice of hearing was returned, it seems, to the immigration court as undeliverable. Anyway, Mr. Novello Cardenas files that motion to reopen in 2018. DHS didn't respond to the motion in immigration court. Nevertheless, the immigration judge denied it. The BIA upheld the IJ. Likely believing that he had to based on the Fifth Circuit's old rule, Mr. Novello Cardenas then filed a motion to reconsider with the BIA, explaining how the BIA had messed up. The BIA denied that too. Unnecessary to do now, though, after the Supreme Court's unanimous decision in Santo Zacaria a few weeks ago. Alright, we're at the Fifth Circuit. The next in a long line of decisions regarding in absentia motions to reopen and efficient NTAs. And I'm not going to lie, this one seems pretty sympathetic. But no dice, reason of the Fifth Circuit. The reason why we've received quite a few interesting decisions in the in absentia motion to reopen context with deficient NTAs is because the in absentia reopening statute, unlike other statutes under the INA, expressly states that reopening is required if, quote, the non-citizen demonstrates that the non-citizen did not receive notice in accordance with paragraph 1 or 2 of section 239A, end quote. Pretty direct line to the NTA definition at INA section 239A, reason to the Fifth Circuit in its first favorable decision on this issue a few years ago, Rodriguez v. Garland. Since then, though, other panels have chipped away at that clear holding from Rodriguez in episode 75, and which withstood en banc challenge on episode 104. Rodriguez's rule seems bright line, quote, An NTA containing all the information specified under INA section 239A1 is required to sustain an in absentia removal order, end quote. So I guess courts in the Fifth Circuit can't go in absentia if the initiating NTA is deficient, right? But after Rodriguez, other Fifth Circuit panels said that notwithstanding the reopening statute, a non-citizen is not entitled to actual notice of his removal hearing if the non-citizen, quote, fails to provide a correct mailing address, including failure to correct an erroneous address, end quote. Nowhere is that found in the in absentia reopening statute's text. Seems like then we might be in a weird world where IJs in the Fifth Circuit can't go in absentia where there's a deficient NTA, but if they do, and if the non-citizen had failed to provide a correct mailing address, that improper in absentia order of removal can't be reopened later. Right? I guess. Because the Fifth Circuit here, quote, highlights that Mr. Rodriguez had provided a valid address, end quote. Mr. Novello Cardenas, in contrast, was off by one letter in the middle of a city name in what was probably a correctly handwritten H that was misread as a B, if I'm guessing. The Fifth Circuit made clear in a footnote that, quote, even though it may be that this one-letter error, since the zip code and street address were correct, almost certainly would not interfere with delivery, we will not consider the degree of error, end quote. What's important is that there was an error, and that Mr. Novello Cardenas didn't correct that one letter after being released from immigration prison in the Texas desert and traveling to his brother's house in New York State. And, of course, that the notice of hearing was returned to the court.
the incorrect letter made all the difference. Because under a different immigration statute, not the in absentia reopening statute, the law states that, quote, no written notice shall be required if the non-citizen has failed to provide the address, end quote. So again, that's what all these decisions are about. What happens if no notice is required, but also reopening seems to be required if the NTA is deficient? Well, the Fifth Circuit has now said again for like the third or fourth time that it's the no-notice statute that essentially trumps the reopening one. Neither Nis Chavez nor Rodriguez explains what happens when the non-citizen provides an incorrect address or fails to correct an incorrect address, reasoned the court. For better or worse, later Fifth Circuit precedent does, though. And under the rule of orderliness, the panel is bound by those later Fifth Circuit decisions directly answering the question, and not what Niz Chavez or Rodriguez might actually imply. The Fifth Circuit explained all this by going through its various recent decisions on the issue since Rodriguez, namely Spagnol Bastos, Gidiel, and Platero Rosales. Give it a read if you need to review the ins and outs of Fifth Circuit precedent on this winding issue. To be exceptionally clear, clarified the Fifth Circuit, it doesn't matter whose fault the misspelled address is. If the non-citizen reviewed the NTA or address change form with the misspelled address, it's held against the non-citizen if the non-citizen doesn't correct it. The Fifth Circuit rejected some final arguments and ruled against now 50-year-old Mr. Novello Cardenas. Good holdings on exhaustion, though, ironically, unaddressed by me. Before I go... In this case, the immigration officer who served the NTA swore, as such officers always do, that Mr. Novello Cardenas, quote, was provided oral notice in the Spanish language of the time and place of his hearing, end quote. Officers always swear to that or some version of it when they serve NTAs. Yet at oral argument, Oil conceded, as they had to, that, quote, such notice was not given then because the time and place information was not yet known, end quote. That is, the immigration officer swore that he did something that he hadn't done. This must happen all the time, or at least between 1997 and 2018, and it likely still happens to this day. Might it be time to reconsider the presumption of regularity accorded to NTAs? If nothing else, oil's necessary admission to irregularity, not faulting oil, they had to do it. And indeed, blatant misrepresentation by the immigration officer in this case is a citation to use when challenging NTAs and other government documents in court. After all, if Mr. Novello Cardenas loses here because he, quote, signed the form with the one-letter error in the name of the city to which notices were to be sent, end quote, then it, quote, cannot be too much to expect the government to turn square corners, end quote, as well, as Justice Gorsuch so eloquently put it in his Chavez. And that is Novello Cardenas v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.